Let's take our Bibles tonight and be turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would please, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So uh, so nice to have each of you here with us tonight, and I appreciate each of you coming uh, to be here. I was uh, driving over talking with my wife as I was driving to the church tonight, and, uh, and I said, hon, I said, uh, if we could get as many people in church tonight as are in these restaurant uh, parking lots that I'm passing, man, this would be great. And, uh, you know, I don't think we quite did that, but you're here. And uh, I'm here, and so and the Lord's here, amen? And more importantly, He's here. But uh, we're glad that each have come tonight and appreciate the opportunity to be here with you this evening. Let me thank Pastor Lang for inviting me to come and uh, hold the conference here this week. Uh, you know, he's a godly man, a, a good pastor. You folks know that already. I hope you tell him that every once in a while, though. You know, I had folks in my church who would never tell me I was a good pastor. They just thought it would go to my head if they told me anything nice, Okay. And so they just reserved all that. I guess they were waiting until I died. And, uh, you know, they go to my funeral and say something nice about that time. You know, uh, the Lord has a way of humbling pastors, so you don't have to worry about him getting a big head. But he needs encouragement. And uh, every once in a while, y'all just say thank you. Thank you for being my pastor, and I appreciate it. I appreciate the teaching and all the hard work you go to for always being there. And, and, you know, you can say things better than I can because you're experiencing him in reality as your pastor. So, you know, just take the opportunity to uh, encourage him uh, every once in a while. It will be a blessing, and it will be a help in your life as well. It's uh, more blessed to give praise than it is to complain, is it not? And, uh, and we do want to uh, thank the Lord for our pastors. And, uh, you know, you got a good pastor. Thank the Lord for your pastor and pray for him often and encourage him. But I do thank him for uh, inviting me to come, his kindness. He's very kind while I'm here. And his family's kindness. We had lunch together on Sunday. That was uh, a joy. I always enjoy being around Pastor Lang's uh, family and spending time with them. I appreciate your kindness. And, uh, and uh, you know, you've been kind to me throughout this week, and so that's, uh, that's wonderful. It's been a joy. It's been a privilege to have been able to be here with you. I trust the conference has been a blessing to you in, in some way, a help to you in some way. Um, you know, I don't, I don't do what I'm doing because I have to do it. Uh, I do it because I want to. I want to be a help to folks. Uh, I could stay home with my wife. In fact, I think she would prefer that I would be home with her tonight. Uh, but, uh, you know, I travel at times, and the whole purpose of getting on the road and traveling is just to be a help to God's people, because quite honestly, our churches are hurting today. Uh, they're hurting in a lot of different ways, and, uh, and, and so the Lord burdened me a few years ago just to begin to travel and be as a help where I can be a help. It's not I'm trying to force myself on anyone, but I just want to be a help and encouragement and help God's people to really rally uh, for the age and time that we're living in, because we're living in some very difficult days. And if God's people don't rally and stand up uh, for what's right, we're going to lose the whole thing. And, uh, and so it's not looking real good uh, from that perspective. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? And uh, so we appreciate each of you being here tonight. Having said those things, let me get focused on what we're going to do here tonight. One of the young ladies asked me tonight, do you decide about your message? I said, I like them both. And uh, she said, well, just preach them both. And I said, do you remember in the Bible when Paul, the Apostle Paul, preached till midnight and the guy was in the window and he fell out and, he, you know, he was asleep and died? I said, no, I'm not going to preach them both. And, uh, and so I'm going to preach the more practical message tonight because Pastor Lang told me today he likes uh, practical things. So I'm going to give you the more practical message tonight, being prepared for the battle. 
That's what we're going to think about here this evening, being prepared for the battle. You know, throughout this week, I've been dealing with all kinds of issues. We started off Sunday with dealing with the issue of the Bible. In the uh, Sunday school hour, we talked about the authenticity of the Bible, how we know the Bible is God's Word. Uh, In the morning service, we dealt with the reliability of the Bible. Sunday night, we dealt with the scientific accuracy of the Bible. Uh, Then we moved into uh, Monday evening. We talked about the existence of God. How do we know God is real and He really does uh, exist? Uh, Tuesday, the uh, issue of origins, why it matters, what we believe about where we came from. Uh, Wednesday night, the number one reason why people in America are rejecting the existence of God, they cannot explain in their mind how there can be a just and loving God when there's so much pain and suffering on the face of the earth. So we dealt with that issue on Thursday night. Last night, we dealt with the validity of the Christian faith. What sets the Christian faith apart from all other religious faiths on the face of the earth? There's all kinds of religious faiths that you could embrace. So why choose the Christian faith? It all boils down to the risen Savior, does it not? The resurrection makes the difference uh, to it all. And tonight, I just want to give a a practical message on being prepared for the battle. We're not going to look at an issue necessarily that we're going to face with the skeptics in the world today, but just getting prepared and going forth to the battle. Some things that we need to keep in mind, just some practical thoughts here with you this evening. If you're physically able to do so, this stand while we read the scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, if you would please. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. That's a very important thought. We're walking in the flesh, are we not? But as we go out to battle for the Lord, the Lord's saying, don't battle in your flesh. Don't battle in your flesh. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, for the weapons of our warfare, welfare, warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. When we go out into our culture, we're trying to win people to Christ, and we address these issues with them, they are strongholds in their lives. And so we're trying to pull those strongholds down, if you would please, as we go out on our mission field, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Father, we come before you tonight. We thank you for the good week that you've given us. For the folks that have come, and I I acknowledge just like Pastor Lang did, Lord, it's been a long week. Folks have worked long, hard hours. They're tired. Some are sick. And uh, yet they've come tonight. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that the service will be a blessing to them. I pray it will be an encouragement to them. I pray it will be a help to them. I pray, Lord, that none of us would leave here with a defeatist attitude because our world has gone so awry and is so much in rejection of you. And there's so much more hardness of hearts in our world today. Yet, Father, there are people out there that we can reach if we're willing to go and open our mouths. And may we be those kind of people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Back when I was in Bible college, our professors would often tell us, we're in the world's greatest battle with the world's poorest trained troops. Stop and think about that. It's really true. The world's greatest battle. We're in the battle for the souls of men. Uh, People are dying and people are perishing. And the greatest battle that we can ever fight on the face of this earth is a battle over the souls of men. But many of God's people are ill-prepared to fight that battle. 
I've been told, and I don't know how statistics go, but I've been told that 95% of church members never tell anyone else about the Lord Jesus Christ. If that's anywhere correct, that means only 5% of God's people ever open their mouths to entertain a conversation with anyone toward bringing someone to the Savior. Oh, shame on us and shame on us and shame on us. If there's anything that has failed in this world, it is the church of Jesus Christ. We have failed. We have failed God. We have failed our marching orders. You see, the marching orders of the church is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's God's commission. And if we fail at that commission, we have failed. We can come together and we can sing and we can come together and rejoice in the Lord. We can come together and have testimonies. We can come together and hear the preaching of the Word of God. We can come together and have fellowships. We can come together and do a lot of things. But if we're not doing the main thing, which is going out and reaching people for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have failed. We have failed God. The world's greatest battle, the world's poorest trained troops. And so tonight, we just want to think about getting prepared for the battle, going out to be able to share Christ with others. What do we have to do to be prepared for this battle? And one of the major thoughts that I want you to get from this message here tonight is that spiritual battles are not fought through carnal means. Now, that's part of the problem with the contemporary church movement. I didn't come here tonight to talk about the contemporary church movement. I'm just pointing it out that one of the problems with the contemporary church movement is they are trying to fight spiritual battles by carnal means, fleshly means. You know, you don't need a, a rock concert to win people to Christ. You, you know what I'm saying? And the contemporary movement with their rock concerts and with their, you know, uh, dramas and, and uh, entertainment and the, the things that they're doing even now today, you know, they're dancing, holy dance, you know what I'm saying, in church. And that's carnal. That's just fleshly means. And you don't accomplish and fight God's battles through fleshly means. Uh, spiritual battles have to be fought through spiritual means, just like the Bible says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 3, though we walk in the flesh, we are in our flesh, that's what we're walking in, but we don't war after the flesh, because the Bible says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they are not fleshly, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So what are some of these spiritual means of going about warfare. Let me share some thoughts with you here tonight. First of all, if we're going to reach today's culture for the Lord Jesus Christ, we have got to learn to rely upon and depend upon the power of the Word of God. We've got to learn to rely upon and depend upon the power of the Word of God. Look over in Hebrews chapter 4, if you would please. Hebrews chapter 4, a very familiar verse, but let's go look at it real quickly. You see, we can't go out into this world and think we're going to win this world through our carnal means, through our fleshly means. It doesn't work that way. We've got to have spiritual weapons as we go out. We've got to learn to rely upon and depend upon the power of the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, you know where I'm headed. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And the Bible says, for the Word of God is what? Quick. You know what the word quick means? It's alive. It is living. The Bible is a living book. It's alive. Read it all your life. 
and get something new from it all the time. Because it's not a dead book. It's a living book. It's full of life, is it not? So the Bible here, the scripture says, the word of God is quick, it's alive, it's powerful. The word of God is powerful. It's sharper than any what? Two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's power in the word of God. That's why if you hear me preach somewhere, whether it be at Berean Baptist Church or some other church, I don't change my messages when I go to a different church. But have you noticed something about my messages? Give you a lot of what? We're in the... Because the power is not in me. The power is in the... It's in the Word of God. When you and I or go out into this culture and we begin to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ... Take your sword. You say, but they don't believe it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If I were in the military and somebody didn't believe that uh, my rifle that I had was a rifle, I'd still have my rifle. And just because they don't believe the Bible is the Word of God doesn't mean that I'm not going to use it. Because it's my sword. I don't lay down my sword, and neither shall you lay down your sword. You see, spiritual battles are fought by spiritual means, and one of those means is the Word of God. And the Word of God is so powerful that it can penetrate and it can pierce into the heart of the greatest skeptic that ever walked the face of the earth. We'll not turn there, but write down the reference. We looked at it earlier in the week, Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 29. That verse asks two questions. God is speaking and he says, First of all, is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord? He doesn't say that his word is a fire. He says he compares it. It's like a what? A fire. And then he says, also in that same verse, And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Uh, Pastor's son was, had a little Band-Aid on the other day, and uh, I said, uh, how'd you get that? You know, what's, what's that Band-Aid doing on your finger? He says, I was playing with the hammer. He learned that hammers can do damage. And you take a hammer and a rock, and what's going to happen to that rock if you keep pounding long enough? It'll break. Now, you may, have to, you may have to pound for a while. Uh, my wife and I moved into a new house this year. And uh, we were uh, hoping to hydro-seed the yard, which we did. But it didn't work. We didn't have a blade of grass come up. So he we said, well, we're going to have to uh, sod the yard. But in South Carolina, if you're going to sod a yard you also have to have a sprinkler system. Because we get very dry and we get very hot in the summer. And if you don't have a sprinkler system, you have just wasted your money on sod. And sod's expensive. So I said, well, you know, if I'm going to put in sod, I've got to put in a sprinkler system. So I spent two weeks installing a sprinkler system. You know, rookie sprinkler system installer. Okay? 
And uh, I went out and I rented a trencher and boy, you know, we're going along. And then all of a sudden, this trencher is going up and down like a, a you know, a bunking bronco. And all of a sudden, I'm realizing I'm hitting rock down there. I didn't bargain for that. I, you know, I didn't bargain to hit rock. I came to one place where it wouldn't budge. And so I dug down and I saw this massive rock. And the trencher wasn't about to go through it. But I said, you know, I've, I've, got, I've got to go through it. And so I went and got a sledgehammer. And I started pounding away. And little by little by little by little, I broke through that rock. But it was a huge rock. I mean, it was, you know, I can't say it was a boulder, you know. It wasn't a Tennessee rock, okay? All these boulders laying around all over their place. But it was a, it was a big rock. A hammer can break a rock in what? Pieces. What can the Word of God do? You know, let's be careful when we talk to people about the Lord. We often use the word witness. When we witness to people, when we testify to people, when we share Christ with people, let's be careful when we go to preach the gospel, when we go to win souls to the Savior, that we don't rest upon our logic. That we don't rest upon our reasoning abilities. That we don't rest upon our persuasive abilities. You see, I think that's probably one of the dangers of coming to a conference like this because what are we doing? We're getting answers to people's questions and we're going to take those and we're going to reason with people and we're going to uh, out-reason them. Let's take the Word of God. Yes, we're going to, we're going to use reason. And yes, we are going to use logic. And, uh, and yes, we're going to seek to be persuasive. But let's do it on the basis of the Word of God. Let's show them the Bible. You see, the, the Bible can crash all doubts, crush all doubts. The Bible can destroy all arguments. The Bible can convince and persuade people to the truth. There is a spiritual element in this. It's, it's not us. It's not our abilities. I mean, truth of the matter is, if we thought it was us and it was our abilities, most of us would never even try. Right? Because we don't feel like we got a lot of abilities. And we don't go out trusting us, and we don't go out trusting our abilities. We go out in faith and confidence that we got a Bible that is God-inspired from God Himself and that Bible can do something in this person's life and do something for that person that nothing else can do. And I have faith and confidence that the Word of God can make a difference in this person's life. And so I go in confidence with the Word of God and I keep my Bible open and I show them what the Bible says, even if they don't believe it. Even if they don't believe it. Well, have you ever seen this from the Word of God? Well, I don't believe it. Well, that's okay. Have you ever seen it? You probably haven't seen it. You probably, since you don't believe it, you probably never read it very much. So let me show you this, because this is interesting. It really is. And let me, see what, let me show you what the Word of God has to say. So remember that spiritual battles are fought through spiritual means, and the first thing I want to get across here is let's go out resting and relying upon the Word of God. Resting and relying upon the Word of God. We've seen Sunday, we, it, walking away from Sunday. 
If you were here in all those services Sunday, you should have walked out of those services uh, Sunday. Well, Pastor Lang would say, you walked out overwhelmed because we just piled it on and piled it on and piled it on. But you should have walked out of these services realizing, I've got a Bible that came from God, and it is true and trustworthy in what it has to say, and I can have great confidence in the Word of God. They may doubt it. They may deny it. I'm not a doubter. I'm not a denier, and I'm going to use that word to help people understand the truth. Remember, it is the truth that shall set men free. And Jesus said, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is what? Truth. John 17, 17. Number two, reaching today's culture for Christ means that not only must we rely upon the word of God, but we also must rely and depend upon the power of the gospel to do its work. Look over in Romans chapter 1, if you would please. Not only rely on the power of the word of God, but rely upon the power of the gospel itself. Do you realize that there is power in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 1. The book of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, look down with me in verse 16. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the Bible says this, For I am not ashamed of the, what's the word? The gospel of who? Christ. For it, the gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We'll not turn there tonight, but if you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 also refers to the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. There's power in the gospel. Now that word power as it's used here in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 comes from the Greek word dunamos. And the, the Greek word dunamos, we get our English word dynamite from. Is there power in dynamite? Well, there is. In my old home that I used to live in, they built a subdivision across the street from us a number of years ago. And the poor uh, developer didn't realize when he bought that piece of property <laughs> that he was going to have to deal with rock. He was going to have to get his sewer lines in through rock. He was going to have to get his water lines in through rock. They were putting the electric utilities underground. All that had to go through rock. And the poor guy, I think he lost his shirt on the subdivision, literally. And uh, the rock was so dense and so severe that eventually they had to blast. They brought dynamite in and they blasted. I happened to be home one day because at that, uh, that day I was outside painting on the back of my house. And all of a sudden they, they uh, detonated that dynamite and the house is shaking. The ground is shaking. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on here? All right. I didn't think it was an earthquake. But, you know, what in the world is going on here? And I realized those guys, you know, I'm really, I wasn't sanctified too much when, I, when that happened. I said, those clowns over there, you know, they're, they're blowing off dynamite. And what's that doing to the foundation of my house? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Even had a lady, there's another subdivision down the road. Had a lady call me up later uh, that night and said, uh, did your house shake today? She said, they shook my house and things fell off the wall and broke. And we didn't have that happen, but, you know, they did. I'm just sharing that with you because I want you to, to know, as you already know, there's power in what? Dynamite. There's power in the gospel. Even though they may be deniers of God, even though they may be deniers of the Bible, even though they might say, I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ, 
Give them the gospel anyhow. Because there's power in it. There's power in it. You see, spiritual battles are not fought by fleshly means. They're fought by spiritual means. The weapons are of our warfare are not carnal. So we depend upon the power of the Word of God and we depend upon the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we think about the gospel's power, let's be mindful of some simple truths here tonight. Uh, first of all, let's realize that God is in the saving business. He's in the soul-saving business. Look over in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 1, if you would please. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Do you understand that God is more interested in the salvation of lost souls than, than you and I are? Did you know that? He has a greater burden for these people than we do. He is in the soul-saving business. We do not have to plead with God to get Him interested in saving someone. God is interested in the salvation of the lost. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, notice what the Bible says. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world. And why did He come into the world, church? To save, to save sinners. And then Paul would go on to say, of whom I am chief. If you read the context, he thought he was the chiefest of sinners. And, uh, and he talks about that in the context. And why? Because there was a time in his life in verse 13, he had blasphemed God. Not only had he blasphemed God, but he had persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. And he was injurious to the things of God and to Christianity. He, he caused great harm. Here's a guy that breathed out threatenings against the church. Had letters, approval to go down to Damascus and held men and women to prison. Do you get what the Bible said there? Men and what? Women. It didn't matter to him. If you profess this Christian stuff, you were God's enemy number one. And we needed to do away with you. And then on that Damascus road, you know what happened. The dynamite of the gospel got a hold of him. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And all of a sudden, this guy who opposed Christianity realized he's wrong. And he came to trust the Lord Jesus as his Savior. From that point on, he thought of himself as the greatest of sinners. Look what I did. Yet was God interested in his soul? You know, some of you may have some loved ones that are lost. We can't really say this with authority, but we sometimes say it like this. They're really lost. The truth of the matter is if a person's lost, they're lost. You know what I'm saying? But sometimes, you know, you're living with an unsaved husband and his mouth is vile. You know what I'm saying? He just, he just you know, he's, he's filthy. You know? He does ungodly stuff. And you get to thinking, you know, he's, man, my husband's really lost. Truth of the matter is he's lost, period. 
You can't be more lost or less lost. If you're lost, you're lost. But I understand what you're saying. Is God interested in saving him? What, what about the atheistic professor who stands up in his class and begins to ridicule the Christian faith and ridicule the Bible and ridicule Christianity in order to steal faith out of the hearts and lives of young people? Does God love him? Recently I heard of a professor who stood up in his class and he said, I, I want you students to know at 3 o'clock this afternoon I'm going to prove that God does not exist. And if you want to be there when I do this, I'm going to be outside in the courtyard at 3 o'clock. You meet me out there. So 3 o'clock came and he had got him a little platform that he was going to stand on. And, and a lot of his students had gathered there. Not only had his students gathered there, they also told other students about it. And so there was quite a gathering of students. And 3 o'clock he stood up and began to ridicule God and rant and rave against God. And he said, God, I'm going to give you 15 minutes to knock me off this, this platform. He said, if you're real, prove it. Knock me off this platform. And so he went on ranting and raving for five minutes and said, okay, God, you've got ten more minutes. Went on ranting and raving. Okay, God, you've got five minutes. He was getting down to one minute and he's still standing on the platform, you know. And about that time came along a football player who was coming off the field from practice and he still had his gear on and had his helmet on and he hears this professor ranting and raving against God. And he happened to be a Christian. So he got, he got pretty upset with this guy. So he put his helmet on and he took off tearing toward that professor. And he got a few feet from him and he just took him out. He knocked him off that platform and... Uh, before 3.15. The professor looked at him and said, What would you do that for? He said, God was busy, so he sent me to take care of it. <laughs> you know, it's like the professor who holds out a test tube and you know, says, If God's real, I'm going to drop the, uh, the test tube on the floor. And if God's real, the test tube's not going to break. Thinking that that disproves the existence of God. You know, God doesn't deal with the foolish and falliness of man. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Right? Does God love those people? Does he want them to be saved? See, God's in the soul-saving business. And no one's too great of a sinner to be saved. Look at verse 16. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern of them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Why did God save the chiefest of sinners? So that no one else would ever be able to follow behind me and say, I can't be saved because I've done too much wrong. Everyone who believes on Christ for life everlasting finds that God is interested in the salvation of their soul. God's in the business of saving sinners. That's all we are. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And Christ's sacrifice on our behalf 
was for all of mankind. Not to anybody that was limited. Look in chapter 2 of, of 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, notice if you would please. In verse 3, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have some men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Is that what it says? Is that, if that's what your Bible says, you've got the wrong Bible. Who will have what? All men to be saved. Doesn't say just the elect, does it? It says all men. <laughs> the Calvinists want to say all men who are part of the elect. Doesn't say that. It says all men. How many people does God want to be saved? He wants everybody to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the Christ, uh, man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The gospel has the power to save anyone and everyone who will believe it. Isn't that what Romans 1.16 said? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Why is that the good news of the gospel? Because we as sinners owe a penalty and the penalty of sin is death. And if we got what we deserve, we're going to die and be eternally separated from God for all of eternity. So the good news is that Jesus Christ took that payment for us. He died in our place, on our behalf. He paid sin's penalty in full. The good news of the gospel, Christ died for my sins, just like the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied, according to the scriptures. He then was buried, proving indeed he did die on the cross. And then he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, just like Psalm 16, uh, 10 said. He would rise from the dead. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now the good news is the power of God, the dynamite of God to salvation. God takes that message and applies it to a person's salvation when they believe it. It's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth. Not to everyone that behaveth, but to those that believeth. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So when we believe the gospel, we believe on Christ, God takes that gospel message, it's the power of God to salvation, and God saves us. It's a tremendous message. So when we go out to fight spiritual battles, trying to bring people to the Savior, we rely upon the power of the Word of God, we rely upon the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, could I interject something into the message here tonight? Just say yes, because I'm going to do it. Yes. Thank you. All right. Very good. I want to interject something into the message, meaning uh, the train of thought is going to end here, and I'm going to pick back up in, an, in just a few minutes, okay? But I want to interject something in the, in the message here uh, tonight, just some stuff for us to, to think about. And uh, what, what does, uh, how does someone come to Jesus? What does it take for someone to come to Jesus? Well, first of all, they have to come humbly. It takes humility. Look over in Matthew chapter 18, if you would please. Matthew chapter 18. Just interjecting some thoughts, okay? What does it take for a person to come to Now, you can tell me later that I really preached two messages here tonight. If you want to, doesn't matter. It's one message, but I'm throwing this in for nothing, all right? Not charging anything for this, all right? This is freebie. Matthew chapter 18, you know, 
I hope you understand I, I, I don't charge for the conference either, okay? I just come and hear. You want to give me a love offering, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too, okay? We're just here to give the truth of the Word of God. Matthew 18, look what the Bible says, verse 3. And said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Except ye be converted and become as little what? Children. Ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall, look at it now, shall what? Humble himself as this little child, the same as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does it take to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, it takes a humble spirit. We have to humble ourselves, acknowledging and admitting that we need the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes humility. It takes humility. Uh, Psalm chapter 10 in verse 4 says this, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. Why do a lot of people not seek after God? They're filled with their own pride. There's no humility. So for a person to come to Christ, number one, they've got to come humbly. Number two, if they're going to come to Christ, they have to come empty-handed. They have to have come empty-handed. We've made reference to the rich young ruler a couple of times this week. We'll not turn there tonight, but in Matthew chapter 19, remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, What good things shall I do that I might have what? Eternal life. Uh, was he coming empty-handed to the Savior? Or was he coming to the Savior thinking that there's something he can do? He came thinking there's something he can what? Do. Now, I didn't raise my hand when Pastor Lang was asking for a testimony here of your favorite salvation verse uh, tonight. I wanted to jump right up there and raise my hand and give a testimony, but I felt like, you know, I'm a guest here, and that's, that ought to be a time for the church people. So I share with you my favorite salvation verse now. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of your selves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How do we come to Jesus? Empty-handed. It's not of yourselves. It's not by what you do. And as, you, as you've been here this week, you've heard me say that that's contrary to what I thought for a long time in my life. I thought it was by what I did. Be good, go to church, get baptized. Probably good, pretty good chance getting it to happen. God says, no, it's not of yourselves, Chris. Not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not about being good. How many people tell us, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? Oh, yeah, I'm going to heaven when I die. Well, what do you base that on? I'm good. I live a good life. It's not, it's not about being good, is it? By human standards, you may be good, but by God's standard, none of us are good. Because the Bible says there's none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none righteous, no, not one. And our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. Oh, the best I can offer God in His sight is a what? Filthy rag. Can you imagine if I had died in my lost condition, and I had stood before God, and he were to say to me, Chris, why should I let you into here, into heaven? Now just, just pretend, and, I, and this is big pretense, okay? 
but you can do this. Just pretend that my jacket here tonight is a filthy rag, okay? That this afternoon, Pastor Ling's uh, truck broke down. He asked me to help him fix it, and I was wearing my jacket, and I helped him fix it, and I used my jacket to wipe all the grease off my hands. I was kind enough to allow him to wipe the grease off his hands, and this is just a filthy, 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 filthy rag. Okay. All right. Imagination. It's a wonderful thing. You can imagine a lot of things, can you not? So what do you imagine this looking like? Filthy. Okay, if you can't imagine it being filthy, you're not with me. All right? This is supposed to be what? Filthy. filthy. It represents a filthy rag. So I die, I stand before God, and God says to me, Chris, why should I let you in heaven? Well, all my life, what did I think would get me there? Be good, go to church, and get baptized. So I say, well, God, first of all, you ought to let me in because I lived a pretty good life. And God held up a filthy rag. He said, you got anything else? Well, yeah, I, I do. I'm glad you asked. Went to church. I know Daddy made me, but that ought to earn me some brownie points. God would hold up. Filthy rag. Do you have anything else? Yes, sir. Baptism. Baptism. It's in the Bible, isn't it? He ought to be happy I got baptized. Right? Right? And he holds up the rag. What? Filthy rag. You see, there's nothing wrong with baptism in its rightful place. But if you're depending upon it for your salvation, it's a filthy rag. There's nothing wrong with going to church in a right understanding of it. But if you're depending upon that to get you to heaven, it's a filthy rag. There's nothing wrong with being good. We certainly need more good people in this earth, do we not? But if you're trusting that to get you to heaven, that's a what? That's a filthy rag. What does it take for a person to come to Christ? Well, he's got to humble himself, first of all. He's got to come. He's got to come empty-handed. I don't have anything to bring. Nothing of myself to bring. Thirdly, he's got to come willingly. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22. He's got to come willingly. There's no such thing as a forced conversion. We can't force people to believe what we have to say to them. We cannot force people to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But we can certainly share the message. We can certainly encourage them. We can certainly urge them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the biblical word would be uh, compel them to come to Christ, right? Go out in the highways and byways and compel them to come in. And I like Revelation 22 in verse 17. I, I think this is God's great invitational verse in the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, the Bible says, And the Spirit and the bride say what? Come. I mentioned last night, I believe it was, that we are in communion with the Holy Spirit as we're trying to reach people for the Lord Jesus. 
the Spirit and the Bride. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. The Bride is the church. So the church is saying, come to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is saying, come to Jesus. He goes on to say this, and let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. What's it take for a person to come to Christ? They've got to come willingly. They've got to come willingly. Not only must they come willingly, they must come accepting. They must come accepting Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross of Calvary. And the moment we accept Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, we become a child of God. We're saved. We have home in heaven for all eternity. John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came into his own, but his own received him not. Verse 12, but as many as received him. See the contrast there? See, that word but is a word of contrast. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, the Jews, and his own rejected him. They received him not. But as many as received him, for those who would, would receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to them, to those who receive Christ, gave he the power, the authority to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, in that last phrase of the, of the verse, even to them that believe on his name, is just explaining how we receive Christ. How do we receive Christ? By believing on him. By coming to believe on Jesus. Just like John 3.16 says, brother. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what's it take for a person to come to Christ? He's got to come off. He's got to come empty-handed. He's got to come He's got to come accepting. Accepting Christ and what Jesus did on the cross and that alone to be his way to heaven. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not certain of going to heaven when you die, that's how you've got to come to Christ. You've got to come humbly just like a little child. Lord, I, I have a need and I, I can't meet that need. Not only do you need to come humbly, you've got to come empty-handed. You can't come, and come to God saying, well, I'm not so bad, God. Now you have to come just saying, God, I've sinned against you and I have nothing, I have nothing to claim your goodness, your forgiveness, or eternal salvation on my own. So you have to come empty-handed. You have to come willingly. There's no such thing as a forced conversion to Jesus Christ. You have to accept Christ on your own. You have to come accepting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's my interjected thoughts. Let's go back to spiritual battles have to be fought through spiritual means. Number one, relying upon the power of the word of God. Number two, relying upon the word, uh, power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And number three, number three, if we're going to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ, if we're going to reach our culture for the Lord Jesus Christ, We've got to learn to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to learn to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit. book of Acts in Acts chapter 1 makes mention of this. Take your Bibles, turn there if you would please. The book of Acts in Acts chapter 1, we've got to come to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God. The power of the Holy Spirit of God. Spiritual battles are not fought by carnal means. They're not fought through the flesh. They're fought by spiritual means. 
And the spiritual means is the power of the Word of God. It's the power of the Gospel and it's the power of the Holy Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the Bible says, But ye shall receive power. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Jesus is speaking to His disciples there, is He not? He says, guys, I want you to tarry here in Jerusalem. And why were they tearing in Jerusalem? They were waiting for the day of Pentecost. And what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost? Holy Spirit was going to come down and indwell those people, was he not? And as the Holy Spirit came down, he was saying to his disciples, Okay, fellas, you are going to receive power when the Holy Ghost comes upon you. And notice it says, And ye shall be what? Witnesses unto me. Listen, you may think that you uh, don't have the ability to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is not true. That is a lie of the devil. I don't care what your ability is. I don't care what your talent is. I don't care uh, how much you uh, know or how much you don't know, uh, whether you can answer a question or whether you can't answer a question. The power for you to tell someone else about the Lord Jesus Christ is inside of you. The third person of the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit can empower you to be His witness. What's He empower us to do? To be a witness. But ye shall receive power. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? The moment you were saved. The moment you were saved. You received the Holy Spirit. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? Every child of God has the Holy Spirit inside of them. And the Holy Spirit's inside of us for a number of reasons. We'll not enumerate here tonight. But one of the major reasons is to empower us to be His witnesses. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me. Notice he goes on to say, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's like saying, start where you're at. Where you're at. You're in Jerusalem. So start where you're at. Spread out to Samaria, spread out to Judea, and spread out to the uttermost part of the earth. Listen, God is looking for Berean Baptist Church. Remember, the church is not the buildings. The church is usins. Right? Usins. Right? Us. The people. And God is looking for you to be a witness in White House, Tennessee. And then reach out a little bit to the north, to your Samaria. Uh, where would we go the other day? Cross Plains? Was that Cross Plains? What was that? Okay, Cross Plains to the north. So go up there to Samaria. Go up to Cross Plains. Be a little witness over there. Okay? Judea, southern, down south. That's headed toward Nashville, is it not? And there's a bunch of stuff between here and Nashville. I was looking at the Tennessee map a little bit tonight because I'm trying to figure out how to get home. All right? And... Uh, I'd like to bypass Nashville if I can, all right? And so I was looking at the map, and man, I was looking at uh, some places down there. Um, uh, I don't know, Mel Marysville, Melsville, Millersville, Millersville, okay? There's Millersville down there, and uh, Hendersonville down there. I don't know, you guys have vills up here, okay? A lot of vills. So you got all these uh, folks, and, and, uh, and, and then you get down to the big city of Nashville. Hundreds of thousands of people that God's wanting you to be a witness to. And beyond that, the uttermost part of the earth. You know, you don't have to go to the mission field. If you're living in Nashville, Tennessee, you don't have to go to the mission field to be on a mission field. 
I shared with you the other day that my wife and I were here for 11 weeks, not this past summer, but the summer before. The church that I was interim pastor of is south of downtown Nashville. I mean, it's inner city, you know. I mean, it's in the city, okay. And so we started the first Saturday we were here, taking folks from the church out on visitation. We never went more than three miles further away from the church than three miles. We didn't have to because there were so many people. And we talked to people from all over the world. We talked to Muslims from Middle Eastern countries. We talked to people from Africa, Zimbabwe. I remember the country. I want a guy from Zimbabwe. That's the first person I ever went to Christ from Zimbabwe. Maybe the only person I ever went to Christ. But it wasn't in Zimbabwe. It was in Nashville, Tennessee. We always carried Spanish tracks with us. Because we were into Spanish-speaking people all the time. I know, I, you know, I, I know nothing about Spanish. You know, I mean, I made myself a fool more times. I'd go to a house and they'd come and out through the door and it was apparent that they were Spanish-speaking people. And, you know, uh, me no understand Espanol, okay? You know, English, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, trying to communicate. I'd, I'd take one of the Spanish tracks and, and put it in their hand and I'd make a cross. And, uh, and I'd, I'd say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He died on the cross. Uh, read. Read. <laughs> read. I couldn't win them to Christ. But I could leave a gospel track with them, couldn't I? And I'm just sharing that with you, not because I'm anything great, because I'm not anything great. If I can do it, you can do it. And the same Holy Spirit's in me is in you. Just rely on the power of the word. Rely on the power of the gospel. Rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you think about the Holy Spirit's power, there's some specific things that you keep in mind. He's in the world convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We don't convict people. He convicts them. John chapter 16. He, he and he alone has the power of regeneration. When you believe on Christ as Savior, what takes place? You're born again, aren't you? You're born again in the family of God. That's the biblical doctrine of regeneration. You're born from above through the Holy Spirit. He's got the power of regeneration. He's got the power to convict. He's got the power to embolden us. You see, one of the reasons why we are so weak in our witness is because we're not relying upon the Holy Spirit of God to give us boldness. Look in Ephesians chapter 4, if you would please. In Ephesians chapter 4, spiritual battles have to be fought through spiritual means, and we've got to learn to rest upon the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't do any of us, uh, it doesn't hurt any of us when we go out uh, purposely to uh, visit folks and try to make contact with people and pass out gospel tracts and to share the gospel with people. It doesn't hurt any of us to stop and pause for a moment and say, God, I am very weak in this. In fact, I'm timid and I'm scared to death and I'm afraid 
and I'm not doing it because I want to be doing it. That's just being honest, is it not? I'm doing it because you want me to do it. And dear God, I need the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Would, would, you, would the Holy Spirit of God so move upon my life that He will give me boldness as I go to try to tell people about the Lord Jesus? Notice in, in Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 29, if you would please. In Acts chapter 4, in verse 29, the Bible says this, This is the uh, disciples, if you would please, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Acts chapter 4 and verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants with all boldness that they may speak thy word. So the apostles, the disciples, are just holding it before the Lord and say, Lord, look at the rulers. They've threatened us. They've told us not to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, look at what they're doing. But give us boldness in spite of it. Our world may be becoming more and more anti-God. It may be becoming more and more skeptical uh, by the moment, etc., 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 etc. But dear God, would you give your people boldness? Through the Holy Spirit of God, embolden us to be a witness for Jesus. Notice it goes on. By stretching forth thine hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the Holy Child. Now that was for the apostles alone. We're not going to perform miracles inside of people. But verse 31 goes on to say, When they had prayed, the place was, the place was what? Shaken. Where they were assembled together and they were filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with what? Boldness. You know, when the Holy Spirit's got a hold of our heart and the Holy Spirit is empowering us, we're going to be bold. We're going to speak with boldness. The power of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual battles are fought by spiritual means. The power of the Word of God. The power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. My last point here tonight. We've got to learn to rely upon the power of prayer. We've got to learn to rely upon the power of prayer. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, Let us uh, to be careful for nothing. You know, the word careful there in that verse means to be anxious, worried. You know, God's antidote for worry is prayer. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God with thanksgiving. Right? Isn't that what it says? And so we need to bathe our efforts in, in prayer. Bathe our efforts in prayer. Look over in Ephesians chapter 6, if you would please. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul, I don't know, uh, Pastor Lang and I had lunch together today and we were just talking about things and sharing things. We spent quite a time together uh, at lunch. In fact, the waitress, when we were leaving, uh, said to us, you know, I was beginning to think I was going to leave before you guys were. So we hung out a couple of hours and we were just talking. We were talking about different stuff and different things. And, uh, and as we were having a conversation about uh, different things, you know, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to rub shoulders with fellow pastors and just try to be an encouragement, try to be a blessing to each other, and, uh, and to pray for one another. And you think about the great Apostle Paul. And what brought that story on was Pastor Ling was telling me in, in our lunchtime about one of his heroes. You know, a man that he looks up to in ministry. You know what I'm saying? 
that he admires, that he respects, that he can turn to and ask questions of, etc., etc. And he was talking about one of his heroes. And I'm not going to tell you who it was. He can tell you if, if he, has, he has preference on that. That's not my point. One of my heroes, if not my hero, beside Jesus, is the Apostle Paul. I can't wait to get to heaven to meet him. Now, I know when I get to heaven, the focus is going to be on Jesus. I know that. But I have walked with Paul, pastoring for years, because I've preached through his epistles. You get to know the man. You get to know his heart. You get to know his weaknesses. And he's one of my heroes. And I'm fascinated when I come to Ephesians chapter 6 and I see my hero asking the Ephesian believers to pray for him. In Ephesians chapter 6, here's what he asks. In verse 19, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth, how? Boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds. I'm in prison. I'm his representative. I'm in prison, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And may I say here to church uh, tonight, it wouldn't hurt if all of us began to pray for each other that prayer. That we would open our mouths boldly to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the greatest prayers you can ever pray on my behalf. Dear God, would you give Brother Chris boldness? Would you give him boldness? One of the greatest prayers I can ever pray on your behalf. Dear God, would you give him boldness? Would you give him boldness? God wants to use Berean Baptist Church as a light in White House. He wants to use this church for up north. He wants to use it for the south. He wants to use it for all around. He wants to use it to the uttermost part of the earth. So we've got to learn to rely upon the power of prayer. Back when I was in Bible college, uh, I think every year that I was there, I was there for four years, uh, they would have an evangelist from the Chicago area come and preach in chapel. And typically he preached uh, three days in chapel. And he was a Russian guy. And he was, he was short. And inevitably, one of those messages on a yearly basis was going to be in prayer. Because he so believed in prayer. And one of the things that he said over and over and over and over and over much prayer, much power. Little prayer, little power. It's an interesting thought, wasn't it? Prayer can move mountains. If you have the faith of a grain of mustard seed, you can say to that mountain, be cast into the sea. Didn't Jesus say that? He said it. Prayer parted the Red Sea. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord this day.
And what did God do? Moses prayed, didn't he? God parted the Red Sea. Prayer is powerful. Never underestimate the, the power of prayer. Uh, prayer delivers us from the hands of our enemies. Uh, Psalm 107 verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath delivered from their enemies. Power takes blinders off people's eyes because Satan has placed blinders on the eyes of those who believe not. Prayer. It's got the power to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can even ask or think. So as we come to the end of our conference here this week, let's be mindful. Although we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So as we seek to be God's witness in this community for the Lord Jesus Christ, with God's help and by His grace, may we learn to rely upon the power of the Word of God, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer. We are in the world's greatest battle. But we don't have to be the poorest trained troops. We don't. Let's pray. Well, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here today,